Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Elizabeth McNeil, who is a writer. Elizabeth was born in Scotland and now lives in East London. She is a writer and potter and works from a small studio at the bottom of her garden. She read English literature at Oxford University before working in the city for several years. In 2017, she completed the Creative Writing MA at the University of East Anglia, where she was awarded the Malcolm Bradbury Scholarship. Elizabeth is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, The Doll Factory, which won the Caledonia Novel Award in 2018. And her new novel, Circus of Wonders, is out on May the 13th from Picador. Elizabeth, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, I wonder if at this moment, you know, we're just talking two or three weeks before the book comes out, is a mixture of excitement and trepidation as a novelist before your work goes out into the world and then you get the reaction from readers? Yeah, it's always a a slightly terrifying moment. I think lots of authors have kind of likened it to walking through the streets naked. And, you know, it kind of does feel like that to have a career where, you know, you, you are you are judged so openly and so freely and so publicly by wonderful readers. Yeah, it's it's a nerve wracking process having your work dissected, but it's also it's also really exciting. I mean, I've, I've wanted to be a writer for so long, so nothing beats the thought of readers picking up my book and kind of just sort of hopefully falling in love with the characters which have just lived in my head for so long. So, yeah, I'd say it's it's sort of a sort of a melting pot of emotions, really. But um, I really can't wait to walk into a bookshop and just see it there on the shelves. Yeah, because I suppose the thing is, for so long, what you're doing is such a solitary profession. As you say, it's just yeah. you with those characters in your head. But then suddenly it goes to the other extreme where you've let the whole world into this world that you've created. Yeah, and, and actually I quite like that um, because I, but for some reason I decided, even though I'm not an introvert, I decided to be a potter and a writer. And those are two of the most, I, I think there was even an article, the most antisocial careers. And I think there was even um, an article in, it might be in The Guardian, of the top 10 careers for people who hate people. And I think writer, being a writer and a potter were number one and three. But the, the thing is, I, I don't hate people. I love people. And so um, just like with pottery, when I do markets and with writing, when, you know, I put my book into the world and I can go along to bookshops and I can do podcasts and events like this, then I find that I find that really fun, you know, kind of cracking out of my little solitary dungeon into the real world. And what I think is great as well is that it's good timing that the book is just coming out as we, we start to open up and bookshops are open again, which I think is such so a brilliant lucky. thing as a, as a reader, but obviously for a writer, it means you can actually get into bookshops and interact with people. Yeah, for sure. Because the, the paperback of the Doll Factory, that launched on something like the 9th of March last year. And, and it was Watson's Book of the Month, which was so fantastic, but it, uh, you know, bookshops shut on the 16th of March. So the timing for that, I mean, of course, there were bigger worries, but it was also quite disappointing. But um, yeah, now to, to have the sheer joy of not only being able to kind of just leave my house and interact with people once more, but to be able to see my book and bookshops and for that, you know, to for readers to pick up through there is just, yeah, so fortunate. And I'm really looking forward to that. 
because I've, I've started compiling a list of books that I want to get when the bookshops, because the bookshops in Scotland, I think, have reopened a week or two after England. Right. Um, so I've got this list. I also want to say to people, if, if people are doing the list, they have to put Circus of Wonders on it because I thought the book was absolutely stunning. If you can just give us a wee summary, as it were, just about the book before we start to, to talk about it. Sure. So um, it's it's set in the mid, mid-Victorian era and it's about Nell and she... She lives in a coastal village where she picks violets for a living and her body is covered in birthmarks. And then when Jasper Jupiter's travelling circus arrives in her village, her father, in this great act of betrayal, sells her to the showman, Jasper Jupiter. But then she finds that her life, rather than it being, the, you know, at the beginning, of course, it's a deeply traumatic thing for her. But then she finds that, you know, as, as she becomes world famous and she, as many people like her were at, were at the time, and she, you know, she has... a matchboxes um, made up in her image. Um, she flies beneath a hot air balloon um, every night in the, in the Pleasure Gardens of London. And she finds that sort of this fame is maybe the best thing that ever happened to her. But, and there's always a button novel. The novel also looks at Jasper Jupiter and he is um, a man who pursues power and greed at any cost and what will happen when her fame begins to eclipse his own. I, I haven't actually ever summarised it before, so <laughs> maybe that was just incredibly rambling. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, this 100,000 words I wrote, how do I distill it into a, a small paragraph? I mean, the thing, you know, that, that thing you mentioned right at the start, that dramatic point where Nell's father sells her to Jasper's Circus of Wonders is an incredible point in the novel, but there's, I think there's love is, is absolutely... I think there's like, it's almost like several love stories that end up running through. Because obviously Jasper's got a brother, Toby, and like the relationship between Nell and Toby, the relationship between Jasper and Toby, I found that absolutely fascinating all the way through the novel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I think I am very interested in, in the ties that, that bind us, um, whether we want them to or not, you know, whether that's familial ties like Jasper and his brother, as you said, or Nell and her brother Charlie, um, or those of female friendship, which ultimately I, I sort of wanted them to be kind of the biggest love, love story of all in the book. So, yeah, I was I'm very interested in relationship dynamics and using them to drive the plot, really, rather than sort of like little explosions which come from nowhere. I just really that that was what I was trying to do. So I'm extremely chuffed that, that you found that. Because one of the things that struck me as well, because as you say, it's set in the kind of mid 19th century. But I kept reading it thinking this book resonates with me in 21st century our society, particularly the way that, you know, that obviously Jasper creates this circus of wonders and, and would be called what had been called then almost like a kind of freak show and people who would maybe yeah. be shunned. And I kept thinking of all these reality shows like Embarrassing Bodies and things that, that almost Completely. TV companies are putting this almost for our entertainment. I'm not sure it is entertainment, but I, I, that's what... No, no, it's, it's, it's how they perceive it. And I think it's quite, quite, tr- it's extremely troubling that these shows are designed for our entertainment. And, and when I was researching the book, I did, I did a huge amount of research. I'm reading into present day accounts of people with disabilities or disfigurements and really what their experience was. Because I always think that, you know, historical fiction is more about the time it's written rather than, sorry, can you hear my cat meowing? Um, yeah, it's, I'm really I, sorry I, about that. No, that, listen, it's fine. We've had, we've had dogs on the podcast as well, so okay, pets are always fine, welcome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so, um, yeah so, so I did uh, lots of research, whether that was memoirs or poetry 
or fiction because it felt really important to me that I understood how people felt and navigated the world now. And, you know, particularly the book really became a book about storytelling as well and how narratives can shape us and inform us and also be incredibly damaging, particularly fairy tales. I looked at fairy tales within within the book, you know, Grimm's where, you know, that the good girl is sort of rewarded with a kingdom, whereas, you know, the, the people who are to be feared um, or punished are often given physical deformities and how that, you know, that manifests so much in our current films, you know, even sort of Hook or The Lion in the Lion King known as Scar and, and The Witches, for example, um, the recent film where Anne Hathaway and the witches around her were given um, real physical deformities. I think it's called ectrodactyly, where fingers have fused, which is a real, which is a real disfigurement. And just how damaging that is, really, for you know young children who, or, or people generally who have this disfigurement, and then it's associated with evil and something to be feared. And so I really wanted to make sure that, um, as an able-bodied person, I I did justice to this community of people who have been kind of historically excluded or, or kind of there for sort of figures of fun or entertainment or to induce fear. And so that's what I wanted to look at with Nell and the Freak Show. And as you say, modern day sort of modern day shows kind of tap into that fascination with a body which is different. Because what fascinated me as well, obviously there's these kind of, you know, I think you say at the end, you, you kind of detail all the research you did and even things like, we gems, you know, like I wouldn't have known that Queen Victoria was absolutely fascinated really? by this, and, and it's—I mean, she appears yeah. in in the book. But that's that was amazing in itself. Yeah, yeah, and and so many people don't because it's sort of seen as this. And and this was one of the things when I was researching this book that um, I mean, the, the Victorian freak show, and I, you know, I know that 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 is technically what it was called, even though I realise that's a loaded term. But the Victorian freak show was this huge, huge industry. I mean, as I say, it was sort of, it appealed to people from all walks of life, whether that was monarchs or chimney sweeps. And it made a huge amount of money, but because now we sort of view it as distasteful, the truth of it has kind of been eroded and forgotten or glamorized like in The Greatest Showman. So uh, I just find it so interesting that something so major has been suppressed to this degree. Because the other, the other thing that kept, that you know, there's a phrase that runs through it, all history is fiction. And that, yeah, that kind of, yeah. that stuck in my head to the point where there was something on TV the other night and actually, can't remember what it was. And I, I actually started to say, you know, there's, and I'm reading this book, it says all history is fiction. And I thought that, that again, that, <laughs> I thought that was such a, it's just one of those phrases that, you know, just implants itself in your head and you think that's so true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's also why I'm interested in writing from different perspectives as well, because I, I mean, every narrator is unreliable. And, you know, whether that's Jasper's account of himself being contradicted with Toby's view of it or whether it's, you know, because there's also their past in the Crimean War, which was the first war with real propaganda. And, you know, what really happened, what was really seen and really there's actually no answer to that. But at the same time, there are lies and there is deceit. But, you know, it's just sort of it's more grey area and more sliding scale than you realise. And the other thing that I've, which I, again, was kind of novel experience for me reading the book that, you know that sometimes it happens very rarely that every time you put a book down it's almost like calling you to read it again because I would read a bit of the book and then put it down but then whatever I was going to do I thought no nah, I need to I need to find out what happens next I need and I think because you know the different characters this perspective of the different characters I thought that kind of hooked you and so I found I just couldn't 
Because when I, even when I was away doing something else, I was thinking, what is going to happen next? I need, I need to find out. Whatever it was I was doing, just put that Aww. aside. Well, that's, that's the biggest compliment because, yeah, beyond anything, I'd like, I, I would like a reader to be entertained by a book. Um, it, it, it's interesting because I actually find it impossible to write in a single perspective. I've tried that so many times. I, in fact, I thought this book was just going to be from Nell's perspective, but I just felt completely, um, yeah, completely flummoxed when I just wrote from one perspective because I almost need the gaps between the narratives to kind of be like little pauses. And I think that works really well because you, they are such different characters. You know, the three main characters, some of the other characters are also great as well. But I think those three, when they're telling their different stories, their, their characters really come to the fore. And I think that works really well, you know, either between Nell and Toby. But I think even the, the two brothers, I think that relationship's brilliant all the way through. Oh, thank you. I, I obviously thoroughly recommend it to people when it when it comes out. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure, fingers crossed, it'll be, it'll be another great success for you. Oh, I hope so. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the, this podcast, uh, you know, what I like to do with people is take you on your literary journey of your life and mm. just get you to choose some of your favourite and not so favourite books. So I take you back to your childhood and the book, uh, your favourite book from childhood, the book that you've chosen is a book by Jamila Gavin called Quorum Boy. And what was it about that book that, that stuck with you? I think this, I think Corin Boy was my first introduction to historical fiction um, and I absolutely loved it. I remember my brother and I, we used to actually fight, physically fight over who was going to read it because we were both reading it at the same time, which is always dangerous when you've got kids. But um, I think before then I'd always kind of seen history as this kind of dusty relic and it was something to endure rather than enjoy. And I, I didn't have a particularly good history teacher and I, I, I actually gave up history as soon as I could at school. But I read this book and all of a sudden this past world just came completely to life. And whether that was kind of choristers in, in schools or foundlings in hospitals. And I just became completely gripped by this past world I knew nothing about, um, especially as it tapped into kind of the real life Coram Hospital, which at that time I didn't know anything about. And there were so many so many other forgotten stories or narratives within the book that I knew nothing about, you know, black history, because there's a, there's a character called Toby who's rescued from an African slave ship, a boy called Mishaw who tries to prevent his father from murdering the infants that he is supposed to be saving and bringing to the Coram Hospital. And yeah, just all of these stories that I didn't know or understand just brought to life in the most incredible way. And I just... Yeah, at that point, I thought I really want to write historical fiction one day um, and try and do something similar, kind of uncover a bit of history that maybe not that much is known about and just bring it to life. So what age would you have been when you first read that book then? I must have been about nine. And I think I read it about four times in, in my, my brother and my fight for the book. I think I even, you know, I scrolled all over it. Elizabeth's book, Elizabeth's book, you know, to, <laughs> to, not Peter's and you know and, and, and even when I, I I've still got my copy and it's it's really aggressively mine um and and I, I started reading it the other day thinking like can this book be as good as, as I remember and it is just it's magnificent it's really wonderful and it's also written in split perspectives as well you know there are three main narratives as I said there's Otis the Cora man who's paid by women to take their unwanted infants and he murders them there's Toby, who was rescued from the slave ship and his, fr and his friendship with the Coram foundling called Aaron. And then there are the two choristers, Alexander and Thomas. And so, again, there are all of these jostling perspectives and accounts and they're all kind of enmeshed, but it just works. And it works beautifully. 
and so I found that real richness and kind of that of the interweaving which I really I think really stayed with me because those are quite dark themes Very and subjects for, for children's book yeah yeah um I think children do have an appetite for the dark though and the macabre I certainly remember being fascinated by things like that you know even you know if I saw an animal skull on a country walk I'd be like oh my god whoa <laughs> you know and it's I don't know maybe it's because children are just kind of confronting the fact of mortality for the first time but yeah when I've recommended it to people now and I've tried to be like oh yes and then there's this guy who kills babies and this is <laughs> The mother's being like, oh my goodness, no, we will not let our children read that. But um, some of these things are, are real and true. And it was based on a real man who was known as the Coran man, but had no links with the hospital and the children just disappeared. So these things did happen. And so I think it's important that they're told as well. Because it's interesting you said, even from that young age, it almost plants a seed in your, your mind that's what you want to do. Not not just be a writer, but that's the kind of novels that at some point that you want to to write. Is that sort of, I take it that was something even just as soon as you could read, you knew the next thing you wanted to do was write? Yeah, I loved writing. Um, I'm, I'm the eldest of four and we were all born within four years. So I think writing and reading were kind of my retreat where the chaos of my younger siblings could kind of just go on in the background. And I just, I just sit in my room and I just write so many, so many stories and yeah, it's, it's just that that wonder of being a child and kind of realising that there are accounts and um, narratives beyond your own very small world. And I just I just had a lot of fun with it and I just never really grew out of that. I just kept writing. And are any of those stories, do they still exist that you can then look back and, and see the child yeah. and see the potential? Yes, well, I, I wouldn't say potential, but I'd certainly, I'd, I, I found my old creative writing book my jotter, I think it was called. And the stories are hilarious. That they also, they, they, I don't know where I was inspired, but you know, there was one that began when my parents were shot dead at a dinner party. I knew my <laughs> brother and I were doomed for a life of sorrow. <laughs> That's a great first line for a kid's <laughs> food. Isn't it just? Um, and it was, a, they're all incredibly gothic, you know, sort of lots of orphans who are servants at grand halls and there's murders going on and stuff like that and to be honest I don't really know where I got all these ideas from but I certainly had a lot of fun doing it. Because the other thing when I was just I've, I've not read I'm not familiar with Coron Boy but interestingly when I was reading about it and it said it kind of almost highlighted the three I may be wrong but the three main themes of love friendship and betrayal but again as soon as I read that it immediately made me think of Circus of Wonders because I thought those would be three themes that would run through your novel, I think. Well, that that is a that's a tremendous compliment because yeah, I love that book, and so for it to have influenced and and also some of the more positive themes in my book as well, certainly yeah, that's that's really satisfying. So thank you. Now, in terms of your book choices, if I take you on from childhood and it's kind of teenage formative years book, and the one that you've chosen is Nights at the Circus by Angela Carter. Yeah, um, I think I, I went through a phase that I think many kids do where I stopped reading at the age of about 11 and then I started again at the age of, uh, must have been about 16. And I read Wise Children, first of all, by Angela Carter and then The Magic Toy Shop. And then I came across Knights of the Circus by Angela Carter. So, I mean, with a title like that, how can you resist it? It's just, her writing is just so irreverent and so bawdy and it's just a huge amount of fun. 
And I think as a reader, you know, who was just getting back into reading and the joy that it could bring, I needed something which was just really spirited. And that was that was that book. And I read it at university um, a, a few times after that. And yeah, I just I just kept coming back to that story. Did you? Sorry, I'm just going to take the other cat out. This is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you see, my, my study doesn't have a door that shuts. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I return. No, I was going to ask you, the, when you read that at university, did you read it to study it or did you just read it as, as a book that you wanted to read? I read it as a book I wanted to read. Yeah. And, and actually, when I was at university, there were because I studied English literature, there were very few books which I read for pleasure during those years because it's sort of one of those things where because I was reading so much kind of Victorian, well, well, really, the course I did spanned the years 900 to pretty much present day. So it felt like any time I was reading a book for pleasure was taking away from kind of the learning I could do in a book, which is quite a sad way to approach literature. But it's also partly why I decided I didn't want to go into a career that resembled writing while I was unable to, you know, when I was writing after university with no no hope really of being published. <laughs> so just just wanted to keep the things quite separate. Because quite often it's been interesting that quite a lot of times, particularly when we go on to talk about the book that you couldn't read again, quite often that book has been one that people have studied. Because obviously it's a, it's a totally different experience reading for pleasure. And as you would know, reading a book, having to dissect it, analyse it, and maybe takes a bit of the pleasure out of the whole experience. Yeah, and, and the book I've chosen for the Never Read Again, I think I did study. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm falling straight into every cliche trap. But I think it's more interesting of maybe perhaps how the books are taught or how, because obviously a lot of times these books are books that other people would absolutely love because, you know, you're coming at it, just reading it as a book for pleasure. Whereas if somebody's studying it, it's a totally different way of approaching the book. Although a couple of my favourite books were ones which I studied pretty much to death. Uh, Middlemarch and Vanity Fair. And even even now when I'm, because I, as I mentioned, or you mentioned, I'm a potter. And so I listen to audiobooks all the time. Um, and I constantly have those two books on repeat. And every single time I listen to them, I find something new. And sometimes it can be hard to turn off that kind of, it makes me sound very clever, the scholarly side of my brain. You know, I'm not meaning to kind of back myself and academically, but, you know, I'm sort of thinking like, oh, in that essay I wrote 12 years ago, maybe <laughs> I should have quoted this. But it's, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there is a split that, that the book I've chosen, we'll go on to talk about it later, um, by Dickens. I've never gelled with Dickens, even when I was studying him, but I have always gelled with George Eliot. I mean, in terms of Angela Carter, was she, is she a writer that, would have been influential or has been influential in terms of your own writing, either style, subject matter, etc. I'm not, uh, certainly in terms of the themes in Knights of the Circuits, I mean, it's undeniable that, you know, when I'm writing a book, Circuits of Wonders, it would be remiss of me to kind of not read a book which is really the book about the circus. So uh, I'd say probably not so much in terms of style, mainly because I find her style so and her voice so completely unique and so completely almost perfect that I think the idea of trying to write anything like it I would would just end up looking like a very poor rehash of her writing because yeah I just think she's completely one of a kind um, in the way that she forms a sentence but certainly in Nights at the Circus you know it's about illusion and reality and faking things and 
truth and lies and you know with because of course it's the the journalist Walsa who is trying to work out whether the protagonist sorry again I'm doing a very bosh job of explaining what a book's about but <laughs> Sophie Feathers you know whether she is really half half human half swan or if she's a fake and so yeah. I think you know all of that idea of fakery is very tied in with the idea of magic and showmanship. Because also again alludes to in your novel First of all, the idea of all history is fiction. You mentioned about storytellers, but I, I love the fact that Jasper, he creates, you know, he has a character, so Nell, and then he thinks, right, what's her story? I'm going to create a story, and then thinks, well, I've created her because I've told her new reality to people. Yeah, completely. And and the era was just full of showmen like Jasper who would just spin these kind of completely outlandish narratives around the, the people, the performers who were in their care. And I use the term care very loosely here, but um, given that they often were not cared for at all. But yeah, just the idea of narratives being spun about a person and, you know, that's kind of also ties in with the idea of appropriation. You know, Nell, as the book develops, she begins to feel that her voice and her truth and the reality of her life is being suppressed and erased almost. Um, and the book itself really becomes the quest for her to tell her own story. When you mentioned there, when I was asking about Angela Carter, and you obviously, you don't want to try and, I think any writer, you, you'll have writers you admire, but you don't want to try and imitate them because you, as you say, you can't imitate, you know, you just become a poor version of that. But was it going to do the the creative writing course that gives you that freedom and space to sort of find your own voice, which is so important for a novelist. Yeah, I think it was. Um, before I went on the creative writing masters, I'd, I'd written two novels, which hadn't found a publisher and I'd written them in the very early mornings before work. And they were kind of, they were, they were just, they were just like my, my early pots really. They were kind of a bit messy and a bit misshapen and I didn't really know what I was doing by myself. And so I decided to do the, the masters really to, have the confidence to write the novels I wanted to read because before that I think I'd been writing quite defensively and then on the course I just thought well you know I've got I've got nothing to lose I'm not sending any of the work I'm doing here to an agent it's not being published it's not uh, in any danger of being published and so on the course I just I wrote short stories and I you know because I thought I want to make as many mistakes as I can and the best way to do that is to write a different narrative every single um, time I'm workshopped so that was what I did. And I made so many mistakes. And some of those short stories went down appallingly. And others, people really surprised me by how positive they were about them. And it was only towards the end of the course, I started writing The Doll Factory. And that was kind of um, a knitting together of quite a few of the short stories and ideas I'd had on the course. But yeah, I'd say that that, that year was certainly me trying to find the voice in the story that I wanted to tell rather than I felt I could tell. No, I, I love that comparison you make of, particularly if, if you're starting out as a novelist, it's almost comparing it to when you're starting off as a potter. Of yeah. you, you have to learn. And then you're, you know, in the same way as you're sculpting something, ultimately you're sculpting a novel into something exactly. that you hope is perfect. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just with a novel, um, it's a much slower process. And there's a lot, you know, whereas the thing I like about pottery is it's so instant. And the improvement is so so much quicker as well. And you know, within within three minutes, I kind of throw in a mug, and and you know, then I've got something to show for it. Whereas you know, it takes a whole year of writing a book, and then sometimes it doesn't even work. Yeah, if, if only books took as short as. Well, they think how many books have been. Think how many books there are now. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> swimming in words, so maybe it's good that novelists should slow down and then give people time to catch up on their reading.
Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with my guest this week, and it's Elizabeth McNeil. And Elizabeth, we're on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book by Hallie Rubenhold called The Five, and the subtitles to that is The Untold Lives of the Woman Killed by Jack the Ripper. And can I just say what, what a horrible question that was? A book you'd recommend to anyone? <laughs> I'm sorry. This took me, it took me weeks to work out what to say. And, you know, because there are so many, so many brilliant books out there and so many books I've loved. But this one has really stayed with me because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it explores the lives of those whose stories have not been recorded or remembered. Or if they've been recorded, it's been in a very kind of difficult to track down way where I know Hallie did a huge amount of research trawling through archives to find any information that she could about these women whose deaths have kind of been turned into uh, a circus show of Jack the Ripper with Jack the Ripper tours, Jack the Ripper this, Jack the Ripper that, whereas it felt so important to uncover those forgotten narratives. I mean, the first time I, I was aware of the book was, you know, one of my, my daughters, she picked it up and, and I think what was important to her was the fact that it was almost given a voice and a life to these five women Obviously, the fact that what had happened to them, ultimately, that was Jack the Ripper. But he's almost, it's like almost to the extent putting him to the side and saying, these are, these are women, these women had lives. This is what, you know, almost giving them their identity back. Completely, completely. And, you know, the, the messy details of their lives, that, that their struggles with drink, their relationships, the injustices meted out to them and just their determination to keep fighting. Um, I mean, it was, there were some heartbreaking details and some beautiful details, and it was just so intricately written. Um, I met Hallie completely by chance at Covent Garden Waterstones when we were signing books, and she's just she's also just um, a really lovely person. I'm six foot tall, and I think she's about, about five foot tall, so I felt like an absolute kind of giant towering over her. But um, yeah, she's she's lovely. Because I think the other thing that I think resonates with that book. And you often see it, sadly, in the way that either the media, whether it's social media or newspapers, report on violence against women. Mm. Just even the language it's used is still Completely. so misogynistic. And it, and it, and it so often centres the perpetrator of violence rather than the victim. And, you know, sort of um, so-and-so had a bad day and, you know, all, all of these, which is still being told now, and it's absolutely shocking. And sometimes there's there's outcry and a newspaper apologises, but then the next day they, they do it again, it seems. So it always feels very important when these... I'm just so pleased with how well that book's done because it just feels like such an important topic that, again, is so so relevant now, as you say. Yeah, and I think some one of the previous guests in the podcast, certainly my daughter did, and someone else had recommended that book. And I know a friend of mine had just said the other day that she'd listened to whatever episode it was, and that was the book she bought in the back of it. So I think once mm. people know what the story is, it really resonates and it, it makes them want to go and read it. In a way, I'm not surprised it's been popular, but it's still, you know, there's so many books where I think this this should be a huge hit and it isn't. So it's very gratifying that for this narrative, it has been the case. And I suppose you mentioned at the start when we started talking about a book you'd recommend, I can almost feel that I should apologise to every guest for putting you through the, <laughs> the mental turmoil of having to choose just one book. And it is, I mean, it is an impossible task to just yeah. choose one At book least it's not your favourite book. That would be an even more horrible question. I mean, I think that's an, that is absolutely impossible. <laughs> In terms of, you mentioned earlier on, just touched on the fact that your first novel you'd started writing towards the end of that, the course... And I suppose mm. for every every writer, the fact that you finish a novel that then gets published, that's one 
step you've obviously dreamt about. But I mean, it must have taken you by surprise, very pleasant surprise when that book really took off and did so wonderfully well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because ever since I've been writing, I'd I'd been dreaming of finding a publisher. And in a way, I I hadn't even sort of thought about the scale of being published or, you know, I, I just kind of imagined it like, you know, there is this single mountain and I will get to the top of it when I get my book published and hooray, achievement done. And then, you know, I, I got to the top and I was like, oh, okay, so I am in the Alps. And, there were, you know, I'm, I'm at a tiny little hillock at the bottom of the Alps and then there's all of this beyond it. But um, when, I, when I got that publishing deal and, you know, when there was the auction between publishers, I kind of didn't really know what to do with myself. It felt like it felt like all of my dreams were kind of exploding around me and it was it was just so incredible and also so intimidating you know that certainly the circles of wonders you know the the idea of it kind of explores to a certain degree the idea of imposter syndrome and what it can feel like to kind of I mean I'm in no way sort of likening the success I had with the doll factory with you know Nell's vast fame which would be absolutely absurd but certainly that feeling of the, the exposure that comes from being all of a sudden out there and feeling like you've got something to live up to um, and you don't know if you can. I mean, it was every cliche of, you know, am I I good enough? And writing this book, The Circus of Wonders was, yeah, there there, there were a lot of doubts I had to kind of trample down every day, but it feels really, for the first time, I feel like, you know, I've now written two books. I kind of feel like I, I can do it and I can write another one. Whereas, you know, after the first, I felt like, was it just a fluke? It reminds me sometimes, particularly when you hear musicians talking, you know, and they have their first album comes out and that's maybe just a, a product of everything that they've been working on with no pressure because you don't know if anything's yeah. going to come of it. The success of a first album and then, as you say, they all get back in the studio or you get back behind your laptop and you go, all right, what do I do next? Because there's, there's suddenly yeah. there's expectations, there's an audience. Yeah, and, and The Doll Factory was kind of a culmination of my, my interest from the last 15, 20 years. It was just everything that interested me put in this book and then you know writing the second book you know my agents were like well what's what's your second book about I was like I don't have any other interests (laughs) (laughs) I've used them all what 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 I'm I'm supposed to pluck another idea where from and yeah it it, certainly the, the second book was I researched it a lot more to kind of get the find the stories that I didn't know before, whereas The Doll Factory was very much things which had been in my head for a while. And in a way, I think actually Circus of Wonders is the better book for it because I was able to kind of uncover things almost new um, and discover them myself rather than kind of rehashing stories. Maybe that's putting it, maybe I'm being too harsh on myself, but um, certainly, yeah, I enjoyed kind of uncovering a new world just as a reader will kind of uncover it as as they read the book. And I also think as well, the books, I mean, obviously when you get into a, a bookshop, there's so there's so much, you know, grappling for your attention. I think the, mm. the titles and the, and the covers really jump out at you, which again, I think is so important because I think once people get Circus of Wonders in their hand and they just read what it's about, then I don't think they're putting it back down again. Oh my goodness. Well, I hope, I hope you're right. <laughs> that would be one, that would be pretty, pretty wonderful. You can look about in the background and just make sure they don't put it, put it back down. <laughs> There was a, there was a, a, an incredibly embarrassing moment where I, I was in a bookshop and I saw someone pick up the doll factory and I was just like, oh my goodness, they picked up my book. And I saw her read the blurb and then put it back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> crushing moment. I wanted to be like, what's wrong with it? What did you like? 
I mean, that's almost in, in one moment, the, the absolute thrill to the absolute. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this is life highlights, and then all of a sudden. <laughs> well, this, the good thing is more people than not picked it up and, and then bought it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, it didn't happen universally, just, just when I was watching. Listen, you, you can't please all of the people all of the time. <laughs> no, completely. Well, we do come to the question we kind of alluded to earlier on, uh, the book that you couldn't read again or couldn't be paid to read again, and the mm. book that you've chosen is Oliver Twist. And when you when you sent through your list, there was brackets, sorry, Dickens. I know, oh dear, I didn't realise that would be passed on to you. <laughs> the thing is, somebody, yeah. quite a few people have done this question. They, the one thing is that they were going to choose an author who was dead because then they can't... Yeah, I was about to say, the, the, the one thing I thought is, you know, he or she has to be dead. You said you, that you, you couldn't really take to Dickens at all. Uh, no, and, and it feels like an absolute slur to, to say that I've never got on with Dickens. Well, I, I did my dissertation at University on Clutter in Victorian fiction, which um, was very focused on kind of objects and intricacy at a time in the era of, of, of mass production, which I, I suppose you see in Circus of Wonders with the advertising, which now gets in the propaganda during the Crimean War. But... I read a lot of Dickens at that point, you know, for this dissertation. And I remember thinking, I just, I just can't quite get on with him. Um, and there, there were things that I loved about him. I loved his descriptions. I loved some of his sort of portraits of people, you know, and some of, some of his wit as well. But I thought the other day, because I'm starting to think about my third novel, I thought I would read, I, I would listen to Oliver Twist while I was painting the walls of my house. And I was sure I had, you know, given Dickens an unfair treatment and always saying, well, I've never particularly liked Dickens, which always feels also just a bit, a bit smug and a bit, you know, stupid. So I thought, okay, I'm going to read it and I'm sure I'm going to love him because enough time has passed. I'm listening to him for pleasure. And as I say, there were elements I admired and there were bits where I wanted to listen back, you know, his descriptions were incredible, but it was just the narrator's voice. It just, you know, it seemed sort of so overly didactic, you know, this division of people into good and bad, you know, constantly being told how to interpret a character. And oh my goodness, the descriptions of the angelic women. I felt myself, I, I was physically scoffing, you know, sort of nasty, <laughs> this sort of fallen angel. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this may be, you know, you can, it was entertaining. It was clever, it was witty, but I just thought it's, you know, not, I don't know. It just didn't feel like something I wanted to read now. Am I being too mean? I don't know. Because <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> I, that, would, that would be if I had to choose a favourite Dickens, that would be my favourite one. <laughs> would it? Okay, so I'm not going to listen to any others then. I think it's because it was the first one I read. And then obviously I th- there's also part of me, because the, the film, the original film is... Which is the musical even. Yeah, <laughs> I'm allowed so to I... say the musical's great, because the musical <laughs> is great. <laughs> but I think as well, when you you know maybe watched it when I was younger, so that's maybe embedded in my mind as well. But I did enjoy, I must admit, I, it would be my go-to Dickens book if I was going to, I was going to read it. I've, I've been trying to read Great Expectations, and it's fine, but it's kind of been ploughing my way through it. So I've, I've been mm. reading a wee bit, but then having to go and read something else so I don't get bogged yeah. down in, in the one book. I, I read that a couple of times at university, but I can't I can't remember much about it. Because it was interesting quite often with this question. And again, you know, you mentioned it's maybe important that the, the author's dead that you're choosing the book because <laughs> yeah. quite often writers in particular, when they're asked, I think because you're so aware of, just what goes into writing a novel and the, the emotional effort, the physical effort, everything 
that even if it's not for you, that doesn't mean it's it's necessarily bad for everyone. And so it is difficult to then choose a book by someone who you know they've put all that effort in just because you don't like yeah. it. Yeah, completely. And and also the fact that the I find nothing but support and friendship and sort of welcome from other writers. And so to kind of stick the knife in their back kind of wouldn't wouldn't feel particularly fair. And but I do find I do find it so interesting the idea that that people can respond so differently to the same work. And you know, it was something that with my own my, my first novel, The Doll Factory, you know, the the reviews well actually oh, I, I was very lucky all of the official reviews were very positive but you know I, I made the mistake of kind of going to any Amazon Goodreads rabbit hole it, it was so disorientating you know the idea that someone could think this was a one-star book and someone could think this was a five-star book and then that left me kind of with this kind of existential crisis of like am I a good writer should I even keep writing and then I'd sort of try and please the one one-star review while ignoring the the 10 five-star reviews and then you know it's like well that one-star review is never going to read my second novel anyway what am I doing so I've kind of had to kind of tune out from a lot of that that noise in order to be able to kind of preserve my little writing space. Because a friend of mine who who runs a, a publishing company up here mainly publishing sports books but he he's absolutely fascinated by Amazon reviews but he says the the ones that he reads are the three-star reviews because the five-star are, are so gushing that they're not telling you anything you maybe don't know. The one-star, I mean, sometimes you see reviews of one-star of people who bought, bought the book and haven't even read it, but just for whatever reason give you a one-star. He says a three-star... Or it just arrived late. <laughs> exactly, that's the fault, unless you're doing hand deliveries. Exactly. But he says the three-stars that reviews are quite often are insightful and sometimes that some of the books they've published, some of the things that have been niggling in their mind, someone else highlighted so he finds them quite interesting because they're generally fairer well if, if i were going to if i could revise my books i might read my three stars but as, as it's impossible for me to go oh you know sort of um i don't know paul from merseyside didn't like this bit of it it's like well i, I can't kind of change that now so <laughs> it's, i mean as i say i just i just find it easier not to hear those opinions because i can't change the book but i had a friend who got a shocking review in the irish times and she said that it made her a better writer, which I found quite interesting. Right. You know. It's such a subjective thing, anyway. Yeah, it is such a subjective thing. But she felt that sort of the, she, while she felt that the overall tone was unfair, she felt that, you know, that maybe her writing was overly florid or something like that. When I, when I was writing this second book, actually, I did have my, my one sort of slightly negative review in my head, which was in The Scotsman. And... It sort of contained some sort of damning line, like "Let's hope with her second novel, Elizabeth McNeil can engage the the head as well as the heart." And it was, you know, which kind of or, or sort of that that she can deal with weightier matters. At the time, I sort of felt was a was a bit unfair, given that the first book was kind of really a very feminist book um, about the, the male desire to sort of own own women. So I felt that maybe that was a weighty thing that maybe hadn't been recognised. But certainly with this this second book, I thought, you know, is this is this too frothy? Is this too frothy? Is this too frothy? And a book which I wrote before Circus of Wonders, well, I wrote 40,000 words for it and abandoned it. And that was set in it. It was a completely different thing. And I just thought, is this important enough? And when I hit on Circus of Wonders and the idea of kind of the freak show and all of these sort of forgotten or obliterated narratives, I thought, actually, this this is an important story to tell. I also think as well that, as I say, I think these things are subjective and I suppose yeah. the temptation is just not to read any of the reviews. Yeah, and it, it's very hard though, because it's like being in the locker room and 
you know, hear sort of two girls whispering about you and you, you shouldn't <laughs> listen in, that you, you can't sort of help sort of holding an ear out. So, yeah. yeah. It's funny, I had a conversation recently with someone and, and maybe quite often on social media, I'll maybe just tweet out a book cover of a book I've read and a couple of lines of praise. And I've, I kind of consciously, because I think there's so much negativity, it's dead easy for, for somebody to say something publicly that's rubbish. Or and I'd, So mm-hmm. if, I, if it's a book I haven't enjoyed, I just don't mention it at all. Because I think, again, somebody else has put so much effort into it. And who am I anyway to tell somebody if I don't like the book? I prefer to just be positive and say, this is a book that I like. I think the world's a better place if people are more positive rather than... It's easy to be negative, I think. Yeah, I definitely don't. If I don't like a book, I just don't mention it. I just put it to one side and yeah. that's it for yeah. exactly the same reasons you asked. Yeah, then move on. We're actually over on to the, the fifth and final question in the podcast, and that's either the last book you read or a book that you're currently reading. And you've given me two choices or two, oh, two selections I'm, I'm happy for that. Just, yeah, well, we can just talk about Women in Salt by Gabriella Garcia, if you like. Okay, well, we could do that, and I could just I, mention. I haven't, fini- I haven't finished the Man and Tree Witches, which was the other one that I gave, which I'm listening to here. I need to do more painting in order to finish that book. <laughs> well, of, of Women in Salt by Gabriela Garcia, and what is that book about, and what, why, who, who did you did you enjoy that book? Um, I love that book. It's a, it's about five generations of women, and they're they're linked by blood and circumstance, and it spans it spans so much. It's set in Cuba is the other very important thing and the US, but it's about Latino women. Um, and it spans, you know, 19th century cigar factories of Havana where they're being read Victor Hugo um, all the way to present day detention centers for parents and children. And it's really about the choices of mothers and the strength of women who tell their stories despite so many attempts to silence them. And it is some of the best writing I think I have ever read. Um, it was absolutely exquisite it was kind of, it was the kind of compassionate insightful writing that I haven't read since Girl Woman Other by Bernadine Evaristo and I just I couldn't bear for it to end every single chapter is kind of a, a short story told by a different different generation of the women in the same family and all of these stories just broke my heart um, and I think especially given I'm expecting a baby of my own the idea of what's passed on to the next generation and what impact the decisions we make or the conflicts we get involved in can have and how they can reverberate down the generations. Yeah, I just I just thought it was absolutely perfect. It's a New York Times bestseller um, and it's just out in the UK. I mean, do you find as a writer, sometimes when you read a book and as you say, some of the best writing that you've you've ever read, it's a part of you thinking, you know, that pushes you to then, you know, I want to I want to keep improving, I want to keep getting better in terms of my own craft. Oh, definitely. Um, I see almost, books as almost as textbooks, that they are, they're, they're kind of my research in a way. I, I don't understand it when writers say that they don't read, because for me, the two are just completely, they're completely linked. They're almost the same thing, you know, and, and when I read a book where it has a perfection at a sentence level, I, I just find that so exciting. And I just sort of really aspire to write a book which has the power within just a few words that an author I'm reading has. It's a, it's a strange thing because any anything you ever read in terms of advice for writers, obviously to write, but to read and mm. to read as, as extensively as you can because every book that you're reading has been deemed worthy of publication. Sometimes it's yeah. things you learn, sometimes you think things that you think, well, I could do better than that. Or, But you're learning from every yeah. book you read. Completely, completely. And I, I mean, normally when I'm not moving house, expecting a baby and launching a book, um, I, I read... <laughs> 
<laughs> I read three or four books a week. And yeah, every every day I'll, I'll, I'd stop writing at maybe three or four o'clock and I might read 300 pages that afternoon or evening. At the moment, that's not happening because, yeah, as I say, I've got a few other things on. But I'm absolutely convinced that every single book that I have read while, re- while writing Circuits of Wonders has just shaped it in subtle ways. Hopefully, hopefully subtle. I mean, oh my goodness, I hate to be anything more than yeah, subconsciously influenced. Because the other thing I was going to ask, you know, I've often heard writers say, quite often, particularly when they're thinking about a book, they'll maybe go out walking and they're just churning over the ideas in their head. And that's that's a part that's part of the process. Do you find in terms of the, the pottery, is that something, because it's a different thing you're doing in the back of your head while you're focusing on the action of what you're, you're making, the processes Definitely. of writing are going on behind the scenes? Yeah, for sure. And when I'm really struggling with my book, I'll, I'll go and sort of throw a day's worth of pots. And I mean, I, I think it helps me in two ways. First of all, for that reason that I'm able to kind of everything which kind of felt too much when I was sitting at my desk and trying to write, I kind of play over it the back of my mind without even consciously thinking about it. That's the first reason. The second reason is sometimes when I'm struggling to write, I feel I feel really useless. I, I definitely need to feel like I have achieved things. And so if I spend three days sitting at my laptop and can't produce anything or delete everything I've done, I feel really bad about myself, which which is, you know, I'm unable to see it as part of the process, which it is. And so, you know, to be able to then go out and throw 50 mugs, I'm like, okay, so this week I have done something. And so I find that that can kind of lift my mood in a way that improves the way I approach my writing. And are you tempted then to marry the two and, and start making merchandise to, to go along with your, your books? <laughs> Circus of Wonders both both of the books have had little pots associated with them Um, in the doll factory I made little dishes little ring dishes which had gold leaf wombats because there was a wombat called Guinevere because the pre-raphalites were obsessed with wombats and for Circus of Wonders I've made little tea lights um, which have a moon cut into the side of them so you can see it when the candle's going because oh brilliant yeah queen of the moon and the stars yeah exactly and you know that she's sponsored by the well she's on the matchbox covers and picador even they for for some of the proofs that went out they even um commissioned tiny little matchbox holders of matches in them kind of mocking up what that advertising would have looked like and they sent the match to some people with the little tea lights i made so yeah that's 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 a great idea isn't it isn't it it was it was their idea i think so i can't claim credit for that well, I have to say the novel itself, which is out, I think, on the 13th of May, bookshops will be open all over the UK, so there's no excuse for not getting into a bookshop, picking it up, <laughs> and just in the off chance that Elizabeth is locking the background, don't put it back down on the table. <laughs> go, go to you'll, the... break, you'll break my soul again. <laughs> I've really just got over it. But as I, say, I, as I said to you at the start, I absolutely loved it. I think it was a book that kept... It, say it doesn't happen very often when it keeps calling to you. It won't let you put it down. And I'm sure that when people start reading it, they are, they are going to absolutely love it. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's been an absolute treat. Yeah, absolutely. I've really loved uh, chatting to you about books. And, and best of luck with the novel. And obviously, even even greater luck with, uh, with the imminent arrival of your baby. And in the, in the immediate short term with the rest of your painting. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, 
say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.